The title of this talk is I Vow Not to Kill the Children of My Mind. I'd like to thank Ross for inviting me into this predicament today. <laughs> um, this is a, a PJ Harvey song called You Said Something. On a rooftop in Brooklyn at one in the morning, watching the lights flash in Manhattan, I see five bridges, the Empire State Building, and you said something that I've never forgotten. We lean against railings, describing the colours and the smells of our homelands, acting like lovers. How did we get here, to this point of living? I held my breath, and you said something. And I'm doing nothing wrong, riding in your car, the radio playing, we sing up to the eighth floor. A rooftop in Manhattan, one in the morning, when you said something that I've never forgotten, when you said something that was really important. I've just recently read Bridget Lowry's A Year of Loving Kindness to Myself. I, I really love it. I, I love the, the title, Loving Kindness to Myself. Do I deserve that? Am I worthy of that? If you really knew me, you wouldn't be so sure either. Here is Bridget. <clears throat> Sunday, I'd leave it to the last minute to go somewhere I'd planned to go. When the time arrives, I'm exhausted. It's hard to abandon the idea of going and surrender to the reality of being too tired. I make a cup of tea instead and sit to enjoy it. Or that's the plan. Instead, I hear the voice, the crippling one that blames, shames, negates, and catastrophizes. You should have gone. Why didn't you go earlier in the week? You don't measure up. You can't get things together. You're not coping. I refuse to accept this analysis of the situation. What a squandering to spend the evening torturing myself about resting up. It's new to me to really listen to my energy level and act accordingly. I can't do everything. I don't have to explain myself to anybody or justify my decision. It is my right to say no to something and not guilt myself about it. What is loving kindness to myself really? It is stopping before I get exhausted, buying myself a favorite food when I'm feeling low, listening to things that nourish and inspire me, yoga for a sore back, a book beside the bed. This is it, right now, the good bit, the only bit, I tell myself. Just do your best, one foot in front of the other, and take your time. The whole book is like that. <laughs> uh, Robert Aitken, in The Mind of Clover, in his chapter on not killing, says... Uh, practicing compassion goes hand in hand with practicing realization. On your cushions in the dojo, you learn first of all to be compassionate towards yourself. We vow to save all beings, but how do you save the roughnecks in your own mind? Treat them as neighbors who come to the door when you are meditating. 
Take a moment to acknowledge them. They are closer than neighbours after all. This Bodhisattva practice has its source in Zazen, where you discern the power of a single unacknowledged thought. It carries you away and the importance of seeing through it. So the, the power of, an, of a single unacknowledged thought, that's the inspiration behind this title, I vow not to kill the children of my mind. So like the children are the thoughts and feelings that I don't want to have, that I want to silence and cut off and deny and disown. And I called them children because they are innocent, born from my mind or from consequences or karma or circumstances, but innocent, newly formed, deserving of respect. Robert Aitken in the same <coughs> chapter talks about three ways that the precepts could be approached, the literal, the compassionate and the essential. And then he calls them here the Hinayana, Mahayana, and the Buddha nature views. So three ways. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I always want to just skip to the third one. It must be the best, right? It comes <laughs> at the end. <laughs> must be the best one. Um, all the messy, inconvenient details of the, the, the literal and the compassionate, they're just mundane. That's not interesting. Anyone can do those. Skip straight to the all is oneness Buddha nature. No thought of killing, no old age and death. So, literal not killing. I've been reading Steven Pinker's 2011 book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. And um, it's way out of my area of expertise and also I'm only partway through it. And um, I, I want him to convince me. So that's forewarning, I guess. But he's arguing that violence has actually decreased in, over human history. So, and he talks about hunter-gatherer groups. Um, far, far from being idyllic, they, there is evidence that many societies engaged in frequent murderous raids on their neighbours. And people living in those times actually felt that they could be murdered at almost any time. And also that death was just, death like that was considered normal and inevitable. And to kill other people was good or necessary or even glorious. So he has a whole bunch of arguments, but one thing he talks about is the, the development of the organized state as a a change that would inspire awe in the population where everyone knew that violence would have predictable punishment 
and individuals learn to feel safe. So not killing literally became the way to keep yourself out of trouble, safe from your own execution. He also talks about the invention of the printing press and the novel. So to read a story of an everyday person facilitating understanding and empathy between people who previously had no contact and no intimate knowledge of each other. Reading their stories, they stop being the other, undeserving of care, not even human, and became the same as us. So he's arguing that ch changes like this meant changes in uh, attitudes to violence. So things that became, began to become unacceptable, violent punishments, cruelty to animals, the belief in the glory and necessity of war. Because the suffering of another person from another work of, walk of life, another gender, another country could not be acceptable when you would not want that suffering yourself. Using stories as tools feels like it's got relevance to our Zen way, but I don't think we have an aim for self-improvement, but to actually become them, to see past what we have defined ourselves to be, to tangle our eyebrows with theirs, seeing with the same eyes, an active empathy, an active imagination, our big self, where time doesn't matter, where gender and age and country don't matter. We're not pretending that we could be the beautiful young nunk, nun. <laughs> We're not pretending that we could be the beautiful young nun or the old monk. We are them. And in that space, there's no effort needed to conjure up empathy for the person on the street or the bird or even the weeds in the pavings. It's just there, like our foot, like our fingers. It's 3 a.m. and Jess has got quite a bad cold. She's beside me snoring and it's bad. The earplugs are not cutting it. The industrial earmuffs I bought from Bunnings are still not doing it. My neck is stiff and sore. Neither of my two pillows are quite right. Neither both of them together, nor swapped over, nor one alone, and no pillows at all isn't working either. My heart is racing. Everything's wrong. Murderous thoughts abound. Self-recrimination abounds. I have failed. How can I fix this? I'm almost in a kind of panic. How can I sleep? A sense of dread and desperation. <clears throat> if my instincts were a little different, perhaps I would have got up and done some Sazen. It'd be good to claim that for this talk. but I didn't. Um, <clears throat> and in that moment, I'm not even clear enough to figure that out. 
finally an old instinct and intuition takes over, something that makes no sense at all, but I surrender to it because I don't know what else to do. I put a soothing hand on my stomach and I say, I love you, Nicholas. And I have to repeat it a few times. I repeat it again and again until I fall asleep. Talking to myself, who was talking? Talking to God, who am I talking to? The letter I wrote to myself addressed, Dear Noble and Beloved Nick, who was I really talking to? Entangled, all entangled and grateful to be. My sister-in-law's oldest cat has just died. My grandmother has passed away. No living grandparents are left. My parents are in their 70s. Loving-kindness to myself. Can I really do it, even a little bit? Could I do it this minute? What would that look like? What about the rest of this lifetime? Loving-kindness to myself.
some more Robert Aitken. <clears throat> Love as it is, the expression of deepest consciousness directed in an appropriate manner. Wu Men uses the expression, the sword that kills, the sword that gives life, in describing the compassionate action of a great teacher. On the one hand, there is love that says, don't do that. And on the other hand, there is the love that says, do as you think best. It is the same love now killing and now giving life. To one friend, we might say, that's fine. To another, we may say, that won't do. The two actions involved might be quite similar, but in our wisdom, perhaps we can discern when to wield the negative and when the positive. So I wonder if I need to revise my vow already. I vow not to kill, I vow not to kill the children of my mind. I vow to kill them too. In the spring morning, I go up to freshen up the ducks' quarters and give them peas, top up their water bowls. They have a green plastic kids' wading pool from Bunnings for their little private fresh water pond. They love nuzzling their beaks into the mud and dirt, looking for bugs, rootling, exploring, and then they wash their beaks out in the pond, flushing mud out their nostrils, dipping their heads down, wetting their necks and they swim about and poo continuously without stopping all day and all night. So very quickly the pond fills up with mud and silt and poo. Every day or two or three we empty it out onto the ground and refill it from the hose with fresh tap water. One day I'd like to have a rain tank and fill it with fresh rainwater instead. But on a sunny day with their pond full of fresh water is the duck's most favourite day of all. Even though there are four of them, and it's probably only about as big as a Zabatan, they all four of them get in all at once, and it's just deep enough for them to disappear completely underneath the surface and kick and come up again on the other side of one another, calling and spreading their wings, flapping water all over, water splashing out the sides, preening their feathers, flushing everything out of their feathers all over, using their beaks to preen along their feathers of their back. The two white ducks' feathers shine bright in the sunshine. Two brown ducks, slightly smaller, make the two white ones almost look like swans. And they clean each other. When, one duck, when another duck's back passes underneath them, they'll reach out and preen it too, just as if it was their own. There's a feather in need of cleaning. What matter whose it is? Bridget, this is it right now, the good bit, the only bit. Just do your best, one foot in front of the other and take your time. 